as we continue our sermon series on the Ten Commandments today, we come to the Eighth Commandment, which is recorded for us in Exodus 20:15, and which very simply reads, Do not steal. The original Hebrew is just two words, lo ganab, no stealing. Now, I know what many of us were thinking before we read our call to worship today, and that is, sweet, right? Finally, one of these commandments that I can be sure that I'm keeping, because that's what I was thinking. And then when we read the Heidelberg Catechism, I was like, whoo, ouch, that's a little close to home. In fact, uh, we're not alone in thinking that way. Several years ago, the Barna Group polled Americans and asked if they, quote, completely satisfied God's commandment forbidding stealing. 86% of all American adults and 91% of evangelical Christians answered that survey by saying, yes, I completely satisfy God's commandment that forbids stealing. But uh, before we start thinking about how we want to spend our afternoon, uh, take communion, and head out the door, let's pause uh, for a few minutes to allow God to reveal three really important things to us from His Word. And that is, what stealing is, why people steal, and then how God frees us from stealing. First, what stealing is. God's Word reveals that there are three ways that we steal. The first is by taking what is not rightfully ours to own. The second is by keeping what is not ours rightfully to keep. And third is by refusing to give what God commands us to give. The first is by taking what is not rightfully ours to own. Uh, the Eighth Commandment occurs in Exodus 20, and in Exodus 22, Moses starts to put some meat on the bone of that commandment by saying, when a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. And if what was stolen, whether ox, donkey, or sheep, is actually found alive in his possession, he must repay double. The first and most obvious way we steal is anytime we take something without paying for it. Our minds immediately jump to things like shoplifting or breaking and entering or armed robbery because most of us have never engaged in those activities at least since we became adults. But here's the thing. A study published in November 2021 in the Journal of Law and Economics, revealed that in 2020, white-collar crimes resulted in a loss of $1.8 trillion in the U.S., while armed robberies only cost the U.S. $438 million, which means that white-collar crimes make up over 99% of the aggregate thefts in the United States. So the stealing that God forbids here includes things like deceiving people into purchasing a product that provides less than advertised, streaming pirated content without paying those who worked to produce it for it, defrauding an insurance company, 
or signing customers up for services that they haven't purchased in order to inflate your sales numbers at work. And yet those crimes almost never get reported and rarely get prosecuted, which led a guy named Judd Legum, writing for The Guardian in an article published in June of 2021, to title his article, quote, Want to be a criminal in America? Stealing billions is your best bet to go scot-free. Hence the quote from Lewis Smedes on the front of your bulletin today. We know when a thug snatches a woman's purse, he's stealing. We're not sure whether a creative ad writer who woos money from people by subtle and seductive lies is stealing, but he is. We know an embezzler's stealing from a bank when he falsifies computer data. We're not sure whether or not a corporation who bribes officials to get a deal without the lowest bid is stealing, but it is. We know that a burglar who takes a poor family's TV is stealing, but we're not sure whether a company is stealing when it exploits a poor nation's resources. One yearns for a day when a thief is not an executive in a suit. The second way that we steal is when we withhold what is not rightfully ours to keep. Romans 13.7 says, Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15 says, Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. This type of stealing includes quiet quitting at work simply because your coworkers are slacking off and you're mad at your boss, underpaying your employees simply because you can, and then calling it, quote, market forces, under-tipping, taking advantage of third-world undocumented labor, tax evasion, and even voting for unjust economic policies that favor you simply because you're in the majority. When we live this way, we often feel shrewd because it results in our companies and our personal portfolios being profitable. But the biblical name for this is oppression, and it can have dire eternal consequences because Jesus has promised that when He returns, all oppressors will be held accountable and all oppression will cease. Which is why Jesus' younger brother James writes this warning to people in his congregation, Christians in the capital city of Jerusalem. James 5, 1 through 5, he says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. 
You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ear of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourself. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. The third way that we steal is when we spend money God has instructed us to give away on ourselves instead. Malachi 3, 8, and 9 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how did we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. See, it's easy for us to think that the money that we have in our 401ks, or our savings account, or our checking account, or in our home, belongs to us. But it doesn't. Deuteronomy 10.14 reveals that everything on the earth belongs to God. It says, the Lord, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. This includes our money. It doesn't actually belong to us. It's been given to us by God, and we're to spend it according to His instructions, the same way that we expect financial professionals to do our will when we deposit our money in the bank or give it to a stockbroker. We allow them to take a service fee as our stewards and spend that amount of money on themselves, maybe 1% to 3%. God's much more generous than we are. When He gives us His wealth, He tells us that we can spend more than half of it on ourselves. But He also gives us instructions about how He wants it to be spent, like pay your taxes, take care of your family members, and give some away to the weak and the wounded, the sick and the sore, the poor and the powerless as an act of worship to me. And when we say, nah, I think... I'd rather fix up my house or buy a new car or go on a really expensive vacation, then in some sense, we're acting like an embezzler and we're convincing ourselves that God's money belongs to us by refusing to spend it the way He tells us to. And instead, we bilk His assets for selfish gain. So how does Jesus feel about that? Well, he takes it personally. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as the shepherd as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are accursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't care for me. And then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. 
Well, why does Jesus feel so strongly about our refusal to give to those in need around us? Well, in June of 2021, Relevant Magazine published an article titled, What Would Happen If the Church Tithed? And this is what it said. The church of today is not great at giving. This isn't exactly news, but it is a statistical fact. Tithers make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. Only 5% of the U.S. tithes, with 80% of Americans giving less than 2% of their income. Christians today are only giving 2.5% of their capital, while Christians during the Great Depression gave 3.3%. Numbers like that can invoke a lot of guilt, which isn't really the point. The larger point is what would happen if believers were to increase their giving to a minimum of, let's say, 10%. There would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. The global impact of that kind of giving would be phenomenal. Here are a few things the church could do with that kind of money. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths of preventable diseases within five years. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues, specifically at places where one billion people live on less than one dollar a day. And a billion dollars would fully fund all overseas missions work. That would still leave more than a hundred billion dollars for American churches to spend on themselves. So why do we take what doesn't belong to us and keep what we owe to others, and refuse to give to those God instructs us to provide for? Well, the answer is because we don't trust God, right? Like our first parents, we fall for this lie that God's holding out on us, that He can't be trusted with our tomorrows, that we've got to take matters into our own hands, we've got to rely on our own wisdom. And we've got to provide for ourselves. And this orphan mentality causes us to listen to the evil one and to become afraid. We become driven by our anxiety with tomorrow. And so we decide to love money instead of loving God with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul and with all our strength and instead of loving our neighbors ourselves. See, having money isn't the root of all evil, loving money is. And we love money whenever we look to it to do for us what God Himself has promised to do, instead of looking to God. Ironically, the more money we have, the more tempting this is. Holly and I are going through this right now. Uh, Holly and I have rarely struggled with greed. When we first got married, I made... Uh, $18,000, and she was a social worker. And uh, we both chose vocations that weren't particularly lucrative, and 
by God's grace, He's provided for us in every imaginable way, right? There have been all these years. Um, there was one year, in fact, when both of our kids were in college at the same time, and uh, we, God had provided a job for Holly that could pay for our kids to go to college. But this one year, they were both going to be in the college at the same time, and we're like, okay, it's, we're not going to be able to do this. Well, t- about 10 years earlier, my sister and her husband, uh, when the kids were like, you know, eight, had decided to give them each $1,000. And we're like, our eight-year-olds do not need $1,000, right? That is a bad idea. And so we threw it into a 529 account. It was the only time we ever had enough money to put into a 529 account. And um, forgot about it until this year when they were both going to be in school at the same time. And we looked at, what, what did we need? And the, the literal amount, like almost to the dollar that we needed to cover this cash flow moment in our lives was sitting in those two 529 accounts. When, when they, had, they were added together, they covered the exact amount that we needed to get them through school. Uh, now, you would think those kinds of stories, because we've lived this, we've lived all these times when God has provided for us, would make us, now that both of our kids are out of college, on their own, paying their own way, and we're super cash flow positive for the first time ever in our lives, that it would make us super generous, right? We'd be like, oh God, yeah, look at, look at how great God has been. But instead, what are we tempted to do every day? Hey, should we buy new cars? Hey, you know, I think we should renovate our house. Hey, well, you know, where do you want to go? What concert do you want to go to? Do you want to go to Beyonce? Right? You want to go to Beyonce this week? Right? And that's just our knee-jerk reaction. Our knee-jerk reaction to having more wealth than we've ever had in our whole lives is to think about how we can spend it on ourselves. It's just where we automatically go. Well, Jesus had a name for this, and he called it the deceitfulness of wealth. And he warns Holly and I, and maybe you today, that this can be spiritually fatal. Matthew 13, 22. Now, the seed sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age... And the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him will produce much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. So here's the question God's asking us today. How fruitful is your spiritual life? How fruitful is your ministry? When Jesus inaugurated his ministry in his hometown, he announced that God's kingdom had finally arrived on earth by reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Luke tells us in Luke 4 that this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. So here's the question. Is the fact that we here at Hope Community Church are followers of Christ good news to the poor and to the captives and to the blind and to the oppressed of Charlotte? Do we believe that following Jesus' will will result in the full life that He came to provide for us, or are we trying to gain the whole world while forfeiting our souls and confused about why our spiritual lives have dried up? So, how do we escape our greed? Well, Holly and I at least need to ask God to forgive us our debts. Both to Him and to others. And what we need Him to do is send someone to pay Him what we owe Him. Because think about it. If I steal $1,000 from you, and I owe you $1,000 and refuse to pay it or can't pay it, and you forgive me, who pays that cost? Well, the forgiver does, right? You do. You're, you're in a $1,000 hole. The same is true for God. In order to forgive our stealing from Him, God has to become poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, For your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And when exactly did Jesus become poor? Well, he was born poor, but the poorest moment of his life occurred when he paid the price for our greed. The prophet Amos explained what it was going to look like when God held people accountable for stealing. In Amos 8, 4 through 10, he said, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, asking, When will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain, or the Sabbath so that we may market wheat? We can reduce the measure while increasing the price, and cheat with dishonest scales. We can buy the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals, and even sell the chaff. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget all their deeds. Because of this, won't the land quake and all who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile. It will surge and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in daytime. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. So when exactly did the only son of God experience the outcome of a bitter day 
when the sun stopped shining at noon and God darkened the land in daytime while the land quaked. Well, on the day he was crucified between two thieves. Matthew 27, verse 45 to 51. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But, he, but the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks split. You see, on the cross, Jesus forgives us for, st for stealing from him by enduring the punishment our greed deserves in our place. And this act is what made it possible for him to purchase us for God. Revelation 5.9, they sing of him in heaven. They say, you're worthy to take the scrolls and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, once you understand that, you will understand what we sang earlier. You will understand both your worth and your unworthiness at the cross, right? They're both true. This is how much it cost the sinless Son of God to save you. You are this unworthy. He chose to do it. This is how much you're worth to Him. You can see both your worth and your unworthiness at the cross. And once we understand the significance of this act, then we can say with Paul in Romans 8, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? And in fact, Jesus has promised this. He says, blessed are the humble, Matthew 5, 5, for they will inherit the earth. See, one day if you're united to Christ, you're going to own the whole planet. Everything on earth will belong to you. And only as we truly begin to believe this promise will we be free from having, trying, from having to try to gain the whole world now. And instead, we can learn what the Apostle Paul calls the secret of contentment, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot. See, there's two ways to be greedy. You can be greedy because you've got a lot and you want to keep it, you can be greedy because you don't have anything and you want to take it. And Paul says, Jesus sets you free from both of those temptations. Philippians 4, 12-13, I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, when Tim Tebow was wearing that eye black in, at Florida, you know, with this verse on underneath, God wasn't talking about football, right? He was talking about setting us free from greed. 
That's what we need strength for. Because our sin so easily entangles us. And the deceitfulness of wealth so easily captures our hearts and our minds, our imagination. When we do have money, we don't have to hold on to it. And when we don't have money, we don't have to be jealous about it. But instead, we can fully engage in our work so that we'll have stuff to give. Ephesians 4.28, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Which brings us to this table. Uh, On the night that Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, so that he could go and be hung on a cross between two thieves and say to one of those thieves, you'll be with me in paradise today. He had the authority to say that because before he said that, he said, this is my body which is broken for you, take of it each of you. And in a similar manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the remission of sins, drink of it each of you. And so this table is for those who are ready to admit you're poor, you're spiritually bankrupt, you owe God a debt you can never repay, and your only hope is that He has sent His Son to endure the bitter day of the wrath of God due our greed so that we could say, Lord, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now, if that's not you, if right now you're just so deeply offended that we would talk about money, we're really glad you're here. It took a lot of courage to come and sit and listen to this and not leave. But we encourage you to stay in your chair because this table comes with a warning. The God to whom we must give an account sees through hypocrisy and He doesn't want us to pretend to be needy when we're being greedy. Instead, He wants us to admit our need. And so, we encourage you to stay in your seat and just pray that God would lead you into what's true. If, however, right now, you are feeling super greedy and much in need of grace, this table's for you, and we invite you to come forward. It's our practice here at Cotswold to come down the middle aisle, uh, take the elements, and then go out and go back in on the outer edges. The inner eight cups uh, in the center are real wine. The outer two rings are grape juice, and if you're a gluten-free person, you can take one of these sad little white wafers that's in the gluten-free thing, and we will feel compassion through you. All right, let me pray for us as the officers come forward, and then you may come forward as you feel led. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost and that you loved the rich young ruler when you invited him to leave everything and follow you so that he could receive eternal life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to leave everything and follow you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be delivered from the deceitfulness of wealth that we might be folks who trust you as stewards of all the good things you've given us and believe that having given us your blood, how will you not along with yourself give us all things? And we pray this in your name. Amen.